Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Applying to positions, because that's when you're getting the feedback from the market, right? That's going to tell you sort of what skills... Are, are, or gaps you have on your resume that are keeping you from getting a job in industry. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Are you curious about the future of work and work 2.0? Will you even have a job in the future? from a co-working space or remote? How about what you should learn to stay relevant in the market? On this episode of Humane, I speak with Kristen Carer and we get fired up about college scandals, professional development, and if data science is even required for AI. We'll discuss about the data swamped life you live with devices and messages. And when data goes down, what do you do next? Tune in now. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast. This is David Jakobovich, your host. And today, our guest is Kristen Carer. She was a LinkedIn top voice in 2018, has been a data scientist for over nine years in the industry, working with a host of companies, including Constant Contact and Vistaprint, and today is very involved in education, keynotes, and democratizing data science for all. Kristen, thanks for being with us. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me, David. I love your podcast voice. <laughs> thank you am so I much. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> that yours, this is so kind of you. You know, uh, uh, I think one thing, it, being in education, since we're both there, right, we learned so much about getting involved with audiences and, and training and teaching. And 
You know, I think one of the big things I've discovered, so for our audience, you know, Chris and I work together on course development and supporting students who are doing programs with Columbia University. So we've, we've been able to see a lot, and per- particularly it's been in the remote learning environment. And I wanted to start off with a story for everyone today about the future of learning and the future of work. Uh, We're moving into a world of work 2.0, where no longer are you working uh, offline in an office, but now it could be a home office or a co-working space like WeWork or these new digital home offices that are hybrids of our home and work. Uh, I used to work in a WeWork uh, in New York and in Florida and even smaller co-working spaces, but I don't anymore. And uh, I know yourself as well as I do, we both travel a lot. And I wanted to hear your thought leadership, you know, between the office and home, do you think the co-working business model is dead? Oh man, I don't know. I can only speak from my own experience that when I first went back to get my master's degree in statistics, I started that in 2007. I had gone back into academia, one, because like the, the housing bubble was bursting and I was going to lose my job because I was uh, working in the real estate industry. But, you know, I went to grad school saying to myself, I never want to commute to work again. And then I finished my master's degree and found myself commuting to work. And my next job after that was still commuting to an office. And then I was still commuting to an office. And and it took me a couple years to get to that place where I could work fully remote, even though you often hear of you know, people saying that data science is a great place to be if you want to work remote because there are opportunities. But I think that, you know, it's not there's opportunities for the people who are established in the industry and have already built a reputation. Once you once you've built a reputation and you have some experience, you can sort of name a lot of your conditions for how you work and how you go about it. But I do worry when we promote to people who are trying to get into the field that it's this, you know, beautiful, you know, there's unicorns and sunshine and everyone works remote because I don't necessarily think that that's the case, but I'm, I do absolutely love working remote. I find that I'm more productive. I feel that I'm able to manage my schedule better where I am traveling a lot to speak and I'm taking podcasts in the middle of the day, such as this one. (laughs) Um, So I don't know if I answered your question. I do think that, that the industry, I think that education and I think that working is going to move towards being remote. And I am seeing more opportunities, but I think that it is the people who are more well-established now that are able to grab those. And I think that it will open up more to others in the future, but that we're not there yet. 
Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see with companies uh, across the world who are having these hybrid cultures of work remote two to three days a week, come to campus. Uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, this was a notorious uh, counterculture where Marissa Meyer at Yahoo said everyone's re-centralizing, coming back to the campus, being in person for this collaboration. Uh, but, you know, after that acquisition by Oath, you know, a lot of that culture has started to reverse itself and been more, wait, maybe our mental model was not in that right direction. So uh, we're seeing companies that both are succeeding and not succeeding in that regards. But I like what you're saying, Kristen, that this translates not only to the future of work, but also to the future of education. Mm-hmm. And what those modalities of learning are. Uh, we're both very involved in the space and uh, both with in-person and online modalities for learning. And one question I've been curious about is, is the modality, right? If you're in-person, if you're online, is this a question about access? Is this a question about learning preferences? Uh, wh what do you think there? I just think it's becoming life. You know, I I have two kids. I want the same opportunities that other people have. I want to be able to attain a work-life balance with, you know, some sense of of being able to, you know, get my groceries, keep my house clean. And, and even if that's, you know, I'm not like out shopping for groceries during the day, but I have them delivered from Whole Foods during the day, just like I now do all my shopping online. Uh, and I think that, you know, the costs of attending a university, the, the biggest expense is staying in a dormitory. So why am I going to, or maybe that's not true of every university, but it is certainly a huge percentage of the cost is just to actually live there. Now, are there benefits to living there? Would I prefer to be in an office if I had an office in my basement and I could see people every day? Yes. But like when I have to weigh that against an hour commute to work each way, which is two hours out of my day and our lives are just getting busier and I want to take on more projects and I have more hobbies and I want to be there for my kids. Uh, it just makes sense to work remote. And like you were saying with the Yahoo, like I have seen over the years, the articles saying, you know, people are moving towards being remote. And then you see different companies saying like, oh, okay, that's not the case anymore. We're bringing it back. And then a couple of years later, you'll see articles saying, nope, we're going back to being remote. Um, I think it's a, it's a model that just works for people and the lives that they've built. And thinking of the lives that we built, you know, an interesting thing is about education. And as you described, you know, uh, I went to undergrad at University of Florida, very well renowned for its sports, its academia, its um, extracurricular activities, 1000 plus clubs. And, you know, my attraction to the school was a combination of both Yes, I want to get involved with these extracurriculars like tennis and chess and ultimate frisbee and and, and all this diversity. Um, but is that what students should focus on? Should it just be the vocation? As in, 
I'm here to learn data science. I'm here to learn software engineering. And um, the reason I bring this all up is I agree with you actually that I think the modality of learning is changing to our lives and our lives are continuing to digitally transform. Uh, but there's a lot of issues going on with colleges now. Uh, I'm sure you've, you've uh, been aware that this year, uh, the biggest college scandal um, to rock colleges in, I don't know, um, since, since doping in sports years ago has occurred, right? And um, I, I, I am actually shocked, right? As a first-generation student, for me to see um, about the privilege that people have chosen to to get their students into colleges, um, it's it's. I think it's going to rock the educational world and potentially even propel boot camps and online learning um, even more in the right direction because people are going to say, you know, I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, you know, I'm also a first generation student and. You know, I, I would never have wanted to give up that experience that I had. And there was a lot that you get in terms of even if it was specifically related to when I was in my undergrad, I was a math tutor at the Math and Business Center. And maybe that isn't something that I would have had access to if I was learning remote. Uh, and for my children, like I certainly hope that they go to a campus somewhere because I think that it's a worthwhile life experience that really, you know, I did a lot of growing up in college, particularly where I see the online learning being the most useful is for like the professional development, the person who's working nine to five and wants to have the opportunity to take a Columbia course like the one that we're helping to facilitate. You know, those options should be available to people because the world is connected now. So there's no reason why we shouldn't have that. But I don't want to discount the experience of being able to learn on campus and build those real relationships with the professors. Of course, I have students that come to my office hours and, you know, they ask me, you know, how do I start a machine learning project on my own? How do I find one for my portfolio? Or I give them career tips and, and some people will come and, and work to build those relationships, but I don't think it's as, uh, you know, readily accessible as when you're walking by the professor's office and it happens to be office hours time. So you pop in and you start to ask those types of questions, you know, so there, there absolutely are cons. Um, you know, there's, there's both pros and cons, but I think, you know, where the pros really lie is, you know, in, not in that 18 to 22 demographic where, you know, the majority of people, that's what their time is going to be there. That's what they're devoting themselves to is, is being a student furthering their education. But once you get into that, you know, 24 plus where you're probably starting to think about supporting yourself and you'd like to further your education in addition to that, I think that that's where the online learning becomes just the best option. With these college scandals that are coming out, uh, the questions that, that you and I are both thinking, you know, you have kids today, I'm planning to have kids, and I think, should I 
be saving a quarter of a million dollars in the bank for each one of my kids to get into USC, to get into Harvard, if it's all worthless and other privileged individuals are going to get in. Um, You know, I think it's a conversation and it is a dichotomy of these two personas you just mentioned, right? The 18 to 22 and then the 24 plus. You know, the 18 to 22, it's uh, is affirmative action necessary or do we need to bring it back? And, and where is that lining up with accountability at the university level? Um, but I get asked also every day by students, you know, oh, why don't I attend a program at Galvanize, Flatiron, Metis, General Assembly, insert boot camp name here, for you know twenty to thirty thousand dollars, and just skip college altogether, you know. Um, and I don't always have the right answer for them uh, because I, I agree with you. I had this a, a very impactful college experience uh, that has defined who I've become, and sounds like it's defined who you've become as well. Yeah, absolutely. It it meant a lot to me to be you know just like yourself, first generation. I was the first one in my family to graduate from college. That was a big deal, and I and I enjoyed having that experience. Um, you know what you were saying in terms of saving for education. You know when I talked to my financial advisor when we first had kids, they were like, "Yeah, you want to be saving about seven hundred dollars a month per child," and um. That's if you wanted to be able to pay in full for a private university in 18 years, which is, which was my goal, which was, you know, I went in there saying like, I want to be able to pay for a full-time university. And so then it becomes, yeah, I don't know. I get so nervous about, you know, what I should be doing with my finances because I don't know what the landscape's going to look like in 18 years. And with these scandals, you know, I don't know. I I really don't know what the road is going to be. So then it becomes, okay, well, so should I be investing in my children's college education, but maybe not in a fund that can only be used for education? Maybe I should be putting that money someplace where it can be leveraged differently if uh, the world happens to change. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, 18 years is, of course, you know, well, 18 years. And uh, the one thing I think that is definitely going to happen is there's going to be more accountability and there's going to be more uh, uh, availability of the information in professional development and knowing what you're getting yourself into and those criteria. And whether we're looking at the 18 to 22 year old demographic or the 24 plus I think for both of them, it's not just in the learning, can there be accountability, but in what they learn, can there be accountability? So so that means about uh, a lot of the trainings that you and I are both involved with is very focused on data science and artificial intelligence. And, and as I'm segueing this topic, we're, 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 the, we're bringing to light is how the industry is evolving for adapting to and implementing code. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now in 2019, some of the code projects are no longer let me build an algorithm from scratch, but let me use what Google or Facebook or any of the other big things already made and have it solve a problem. And uh, I wanted to hear from you what do you think is both good or bad about systems like AutoML? 
Yeah. So, I mean, my war cry has always been that machine learning isn't a black box, right? These models are interpretable. You may not understand the math that's underneath, but, you know, we understand the math that's underneath and and we can interpret these models or or we can at least talk to them. And when we use these auto ML type solutions, uh, it, it actually does become a black box, right? Because the company that is giving you this or you're buying this software from them, they're not going to, you know, tell you what the parameters are, whatever, because that's their secret sauce. Um, and I, so I think that there's, there's a couple different things going on here. So for certain models, if you just need to understand who's at a high likelihood of retention or high likelihood of attrition, then, I mean, maybe a black box is fine. I don't know that you necessarily need someone to manually build you a logistic regression model if that's something that you're able to get with a couple pushes of a button. But if you want to understand what factors are driving that retention issue, then maybe you do need to build it manually. Um, And I completely forgot the third, there's like a third piece to this that I was thinking about. Um, Oh, you know, even as we do go to automate a lot of this stuff, I think that, you know, the one thing that will never be automated is those people who are able to come up with creative solutions to business problems that are not common across the industry. So there's always going to be problems that are unique to that business or something that they want to solve. And that's where the data scientists of the future are going to really differentiate themselves. The people who can say, okay, I'm not just building another logistic regression model, or I'm not just you know, going to use random forest here, but the people who are able to say like, okay, I'm going to use a off-label use of this algorithm in an interesting way and solve a problem for the business. It's, uh, there's this great uh, actual book that I've been reading uh, and I recommend it to anyone who's on their journey in data science, AI, or understanding what's going on without getting too technical. So there's this book that came out recently. It's called Interpretable Machine Learning by Christoph Molnar. Um, it's it's regularly updated, you know, and uh, a very interesting book because it's about making black box models explainable. And you know, one of the big things Christoph talks about is exactly what you just mentioned, Kristen, is uh, how common is the problem? How is, has it already been solved? And how transferable is that across an industry? You know, I think the challenge is as products that we're using each and every day start implementing auto ML or auto AI solutions, we almost lose our humanity in that everything's just being automated. And where does that leave actually the role of data scientist and role of analyst and reporter? Um, Who's going to monitor that? Yeah. So I think a lot of the systems that they're coming out with, you know, have 
capabilities in place that will tell you when your model is no longer performing at a certain accuracy and maybe you need to go in and maybe that there's been an a structural change in the inputs that are going into your model maybe uh, one that just comes off the top of my head is you know in the 2010 2011 when the price of oil really spiked and people started transferring like crazy to natural gas you know, the models went all wonky. Um, And that's something where you look at it and you say like, okay, there's, you know, there's some factors that we didn't think about it. And we're absolutely going to need analysts who have business context and understand how to play with data to sort of rectify those things and, and maybe find new economic variables that are now, right, somebody still needs to decide what the best inputs are. I do worry about people putting inputs into a black box model um, that, you know, cause we've all seen the output of stepwise regression and you see that sometimes it comes back and it suggests a variable, a variable be in there that just makes absolutely no sense. Um, so there, there is a need for people who have this contact context and, and understand how variables interact and, and the underlying mathematics. I'm just not sure to what extent as these solutions continue to become better, I'm not sure to what extent, you know, we're going to have to have that context. Mm, Like, I literally mm. don't know, David. (laughs) It's like, you know, what what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, these solutions are going to become more automated and there will be complex tasks that the human will still need to be there for. But, you know, this begs the question. Um, I have a really close friend um, who's been wanting to get into tech for a while. Let me share you the story. He's been wanting to get into tech, uh, traditionally studied finance and has been involved in that industry for many years, but has not uh, figured out the right way to launch pad himself into a career in tech. Uh, this individual may be actually quite similar of a story to many uh, listening to the podcast today. You know, he's um, thought about going to community college, thought about doing a master's in data science program, considered a boot camp, part-time, online, full-time, in-person. He's considered this. But he actually asked me a question this past week. He said, is data science required for AI? Should I just be focusing on AI in the first point? And That question put me in an interesting place because it's exactly what you just said, Kristen. We're not exactly sure where the industry is going, right? Yeah, no. And, you know, data science, the the beginning of machine learning is sort of the foundation, I feel, that helps you get into those more advanced algorithms. I don't, and and maybe that's just because that's the way that I brought up. Maybe somebody could go into AI without having the foundational stuff. I don't want to speak for everybody and generalize, but at the same time, I also wonder too. You know, we see more applications of AI coming out, but at the same time, I think at this point, the majority of companies still have their data in a data warehouse. A lot of the use cases are that, you know, we, so, so we have this software that's allowing for auto ML. I don't know that the adoption is there yet. And so 
a lot of the stuff that does need to be built right now is really manual. And so for your friend, you know, I'd love to know, is he at the point where he's, you know, tried applying to get in somewhere? Because I do see a lot of people that take a lot of courses and they keep learning and they keep learning. And the learning is not, it, it's never ending. It's completely endless. And, you know, at what point do you stop learning and start applying to positions? Because that's when you're getting the feedback from the market, right? That's going to tell you sort of what skills are, are or gaps you have on your resume that are keeping you from getting a job in industry. Because I'm sure there's some people out there who could just learn a little sequel, have a bachelor's degree, get a job as an analyst, and sort of maneuver and move and shake their way into the position that they want to be in. So should you go and, you know, become an expert in deep learning before you ever apply to your first industry job? I don't know. That seems like a hard sell to me if I was looking for somebody who was highly technical but didn't have any industry knowledge. Like that might, you know, the the way to go might be through you know, what they said in the old days, like getting in at the bottom and working your way up. I could not agree more on that. And when I talk to students daily, uh, the question is, you know, oh, am I looking to get an entry level job? Yes. Okay, fine. Let's scope that out. What do you mean by an entry level job? I want to be a data scientist. Okay, where's your skill level today? Uh, I know Excel and a little bit of SQL. Great. Uh, perhaps your entry-level job should be data analyst, market analyst, financial analyst, business analyst, exactly echoing what you just said, Kristen, and then maneuvering, working that way up, unless you have a lot of time to study. I think the, the challenge in the industry is you go to uh, a master's in data science program without having that industry experience, and then why off the the get-go would, you know, Amazon, Facebook, or Google hire you, right? They want to see that experience. And so um, the reason I'm sharing this is I think today we are living in what I like to call the data-swamped life. We're living in a data-swamped life between devices, between information, between messages that are so distracting that does not allow us to pause and get any calm in our life. I remember uh, in one of my first analyst jobs, when I used to work for a big bank, I would always get pinged by communication from my colleagues. And before you know it, I would look up at the clock and it would be 5 p.m., the end of the day, and I had not accomplished a single thing I had set out to do for the day, whether it was learning, a new technology, or implementing a solution for the team, I would get distracted. And I'd love to hear from your thought leadership and in industry, any recommendations you have for new data scientists or those working their nine to five jobs and how to be more uh, effective and efficient to accomplish what they're setting out to do. Yeah. So before I get into that, I want to go back to what you said before about people finishing a master's degree and wanting to become a data scientist. And I just want to say, amen. Um, I'm so with you. I don't, and I felt like a couple years ago 
when or several years ago when the when the term data scientist was coined, I felt like it had this air of this is not an entry level position. And somewhere along the line, as the years have gone, people have started to think that they can, you know, graduate out of school and get right into a data science position. But then at the same time, we don't have a clear definition of a data scientist. And if you ask 10 different people, you'd get 10 different answers. And some people would think that the person who is working in Excel, you know, using SQL and maybe built one uh, model in R is, you know, a data scientist. And, you know, I think that there's a ton to do to sort of put a stronger definition around what that is. But I know that my feeling over the years is that the, the, the term has taken on different meaning. And then, of course, there's been this flood of people trying to get into the industry. And as that's happening, data is getting bigger. The tools are getting easier. Things are becoming more automated. It's just it's a really exciting time to be in the industry. Um, and then it's, it, you're so right, Kristen, it's such an exciting time to be in the industry. Uh, a new report comes out every day calling data, the new oil. And because there's so much data out there and, you know, tying what you just talked about, about, you know, these newly minted data scientists who get their masters in data science or finish a bootcamp program and, Thinking back to that case I just mentioned when I was an analyst uh, and getting so distracted um, by being pinged by communication and not knowing how to be effective in a role, I wanted to know, you know, what, what have you found to be successful to help you accomplish what you're setting out to do uh, in a day-by-day -day work for someone new? Okay, so there's basically a million different things to this. First of all, I would like to say that today I had some work that I knew I needed to deliver today. I blocked off hours on my on my calendar so that I could not be disturbed. No one could hop on my calendar at that time. I also evaluate the meetings that I get on my calendar if it's not something that I think I need to be at. I remove myself from that meeting. But in addition, I also want to say that I'm pretty good at inviting myself to meetings that I think I should be in, but the business doesn't necessarily think that they need me. They don't know that they need me, but they need me. If you're, you know, designing a hypothesis test and it's a group of marketers that are coming up with this test, like, like please call me in. I'd like to give my input. Um, I think that... There's also a lot to do in terms of workflow and, you know, these these pings, you know, maybe it's that, hey, file a ticket and we'll worry about that during prioritization and I'll get back to you and let you know how this ask is prioritized against the other things that we have in the pipeline so that you don't, you know, I've used the um, analogy before that sometimes you feel like a short order cook, except it's more like, would you like chi-squared tests with that, you know, um, instead of would you like fries with that? 
Um, and that's a position you can get into if, and it, and it involves multiple things. First of all, the directive needs to come down from the top that, that, you know, data science is going to focus on the highest priority or the, the, uh, objectives that are going to end result in what they think will be the highest ROI. And those should be the things that we focus on. And the asks that come from the business that do not align to those, we need to have, you know, people who are higher up, especially for the newer data scientists that say, you know, that, that coach them through this, hey, by the way, you know, if you get an ask from the marketing team that doesn't align to this priority, kindly tell them to file a ticket that'll go in the backlog. Um, you know, so it's a whole mix of, because people say they're data driven, but at the same time, we do have a lot of this, you know, analytics and data science teams that are more reactive than proactive because it's missing in the the strategy. You know, they don't have a true data strategy. They don't have the true, um, you know, support from executive leadership that is setting things up in a way so that you don't get accosted by the constant asks for, you know, can you build me a model to do this? Can you pull this data for me? I can't get at it. Being data-driven starts with being people-driven, and it starts from the top down. Uh, we are all uh, here in about being a data-driven culture. I know a lot of the work you're doing is about bridging that gap uh, through keynotes and podcasts and teaching. Um, but I wanted to share another story that might be interesting about how we've become so attached as a data-driven culture. You know, what happens to us as a society when data goes down? You know, just this year there was uh, rumors that Facebook had a denial of service day. For many of us consumers here in the podcast today, you, you may have been afflicted where you can no longer use your, your Facebook, your, your Messenger, your Instagram, your WhatsApp. And uh, for me, I was one of those affected. And I did not realize how dependent I was on this technology to communicate with other people. So much so that it was a significant disruption to my business activities and my personal activities during that day. You know, I um, remember when I used to use AOL and MSN and MySpace, all these different apps over the years. And, you know, today we're seeing. Uh, how our lives are very much controlled by Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram and even Snapchat. And I think the very fascinating most point when all these services went down this year is a very little unknown service outside of the tech space got 3 million new users that day. And that service is called Telegram. For those of you who haven't checked it out, Telegram is a WhatsApp type uh, communication that is all about privacy and all about decentralizing their servers. And I found it so fascinating that in this data-driven culture, you know, 
are there alternatives? And perhaps they're starting to emerge in the market. Uh, you know, I shared this all with you, Kristen, both out of you know our shared mutual experience, but then also wanted to hear from you about you know trends and signals that you're seeing in the industry in this data-driven industry we're living in uh, that are moving from the fringe to the mainstream that uh, you've identified you might want to share with our audience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I think that like, you know, the biggest thing about, you know, being a data-obsessed culture is that now in industry, we want every single decision to be made on data. And I don't think that that's necessarily the right, the right outlook. If you have a strategy and you are going to make a decision regardless of what the data says, like that is not something that should be taking up analyst or data science resources, right? That's a waste of time if you already know what it is that you're going to do. And so that kind of ties into what you were talking about is that, you know, everything that we do requires data, is capturing data. We're trying to use data for everything. And I don't think that data needs to be used for everything if if it's not actually going to inform what it is that we're going to do. And informing what we're going to do is just the start of a conversation like this. You know, Kristen, as we continue to work together, uh, perhaps you and I will have more aha moments with the students and organizations we collaborate with. And for all our listeners on here, this is what Humane's about. It's about bridging the gap of humans and machines by thinking as a data-first culture where humans can be at the forefront of tasks, of projects, and about making our life one where we are working together. Kristen, it's such a pleasure for you to be with us here on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, David. This was fantastic. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next one. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.